Good morning. You have your Bible and you want to open to uh, Luke chapter 1. That's where we'll be. Luke chapter 1 as we continue with our third part in our Advent series. I was thinking early this morning that it has been about 13 years ago since I had a, not quite a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but pretty close. I had the opportunity to go and see a traveling exhibit of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, to some of you, that may sound familiar. You may know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. To others, you're like, what on earth are you talking about? Well, in 1947 or 48, jury's still out on that, there was a, a boy in the uh, Qumran area, which is around the Dead Sea, and he was out doing different things, and he was chucking rocks like boys do, and he saw this, this opening in the side of a hill, and so he threw a rock in there, and he heard a crash. And so he thought he would go investigate, so he scurried up there, and he looked into the opening, and he realized that it was a large cave. And so he scampered down in there, and he looked, he saw... What he had broken was a, was a jar, and in that jar were some scrolls. Well, they began to look around, and all of a sudden, there's all kinds of scrolls everywhere. And, of course, this excavation happens. And long story short, what you have are about 800 scrolls that, are, uh, that some are just little, little bitty fragments. Some are very long pieces of scrolls, and some of them are books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. And then some of them are just sort of uh, kind of religious-sounding writing or spirituality, how you, might, how you might live your life. Now then, this is an incredibly important discovery for, for the Bible because up until this time, you didn't have manuscripts that were all that old. Once they found these scrolls, they realized that, man, we've got something that is a thousand years older than anything we've been working off of. And when it comes to the Bible, older is always better because it's closer to the original date. There's less likely that anything has been added to it or that mistakes have been made by the, the guys who were scribing this down. And so they discovered these Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's why since about the, the last few uh, decades, you've had so many different Bible translations come out because now translation committees, they have access to these older, these older manuscripts and they're going back and they're looking at things like the King James and saying, boy, we missed that there. So let's translate. Let's see if we can get as close as we can to, to the original text. And so that's why it was very important. Okay, That's why it was very important to, to, for them to discover these Dead Sea Scrolls. And now some of them travel around in an exhibit, and I believe it was in about 2003 that I had the opportunity to go and see this exhibit, and it goes all over the world. But when you go see it, it's not like you just walk in and there's the scrolls. You know, you walk in and you realize there's sort of a journey that you have to take till you get to the scroll. So you go in and you begin learning about the Qumran area. You learn about the climate and the temperature and all of those things, and you learn about the, the caves and how they were perfect for preserving these scrolls for, for so long. The reason those scrolls were preserved is because as Rome was coming in and destroying Jerusalem, 
some of the, the Jews that they believe are the Essenes, they were concerned about those scrolls, that they were going to get destroyed, and so they were preserved in this cave to protect and preserve the, the Word of God. And so that's why they were there. They were hidden in the first place. And so you learn about that, and you read about the history, and then you move to the next station or room or whatever it might be, and you see uh, uh, some of the, the historical pieces that might have been discovered during that time period, a piece of, of, of pottery. Or maybe there's some coins that have been found. Uh, there are arrowheads and, and different things of that nature that would have been around and in use about the time that these scrolls were put into the cave. Okay, and so then you just keep on progressing and you progress and you learn more and more and more. You go in and you watch a short film that gives you the history of the entire thing and all of that is building up to the scroll room. And finally, after you've seen all of those things, after you've learned everything that you can learn in 30 minutes or 45 minutes about the Dead Sea Scrolls, you finally arrive at the scroll room and you look up and just kind of lining the walls, you look up and unless you read Hebrew, you don't really know what you're reading, but underneath it is a, is a plate that tells you what it is. And so you know, I was standing there looking at it, knowing that it was Scripture, but not really knowing everything that it was. And then I look up and I realize that I am seeing the books of Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. I'm seeing the book of Isaiah. I'm seeing the, the, uh, the books of, of Nahum and Job. And then I'm seeing one of my, my favorite, if not my favorite Old Testament book, I'm seeing the Psalms. And you know, what they are doing with this Dead Sea Scroll exhibit is they are setting the stage so that you can appreciate them properly. Does that make sense? Okay, so they're, they're kind of taking you on that journey from start to finish. They just don't open the door up and let you go straight to the scrolls. They want you to have that sense of anticipation. They want it to, <clears throat> they want it to be built up to that point so that when you see the scrolls, it's like, ah, yes, this this is what I have been waiting for. This is God's word that has been preserved. And this is what I now am, am, am viewing. And so it was just an incredible experience to see that. And I love how they set that up to sort of build up to that sort of that dramatic moment. Well, as you come to the, the gospel of Luke, Luke is essentially doing the same thing. He is doing this with the opening of his book. See, Luke understands how to tell a story. He is a, a master storyteller. Now then, we know that his gospel is, is primarily about Jesus, and this is going to be about his birth, but the name Jesus doesn't even occur until around verse 31. Now then, Luke is going to tell us about the extraordinary virgin birth of Jesus. He's going to tell us about Mary, He's going to talk about this, this, this birth that took place, but he knows that he can't just drop something like this on his readers, and so he begins to set the stage, and he does this for us by telling us about a, a very devout elderly couple by the name of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now then, allow me to set the stage just a little bit back to the to the old testament years before you have the kingdom god's people 
They can't get along. They eventually end up splitting. You got the northern kingdom, you got the southern kingdom, you got Israel and Judah, and they both get carried off into captivity. Israel goes into Assyrian captivity. Judah is carried off into Babylonian captivity. The prophets warned the people to remain faithful to God. You know, you sort of see that as a theme throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, okay? Stay focused, stay devoted to God, and for a while they would do good, but, you know, what you find out time and time again is that, you know, they're just like us. They have a hard time staying focused, okay? And it finally got to the point that God allowed them to be carried off into captivity. Well, by around 430 B.C., they have returned back home to Judah and Malachi, or Malachi, if you prefer the Italian pronunciation, begins to prophesy. And his message is to confront sin. And he is also encouraging them to restore a relationship with God. But as he begins to prophesy, he talks about this messenger. He talks about this one who is going to be the forerunner of Christ, the one that is going to come ahead and going to set the table. He's going to be the one that tells the story of Jesus. At the conclusion of Malachi's prophecy, there is a period of 400 years of silence. To the people, it seemed as if the the, the era of the, the prophetic age had come, had come to a close. And so there's nothing but silence. As the New Testament opens, it barely resembles the world that, that Malachi has left us with. The empires of Assyria and Babylon no longer dominate the region, but now there is a, a new power, a power from the West that has, has risen, and it's Rome. And they are oppressing everybody. They have oppressed God's people, and they have brought the world under their control. And at the same time, not only are they oppressing people, but they established something known as the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. And under that peace... You were allowed to worship how you wanted to worship. And so God's people continued to worship God. Now then, they were kind of scattered throughout the area, so they did not all worship at the temple like they once had. And so what you had was all over the land, you had these little synagogues that kind of popped up everywhere, and they were just these, these houses of worship where the Hebrews would go on the Sabbath day and they would worship. You still had the, the Levites, God's, God's chosen priestly people, and they would tend and minister in these synagogues. You also had a, a, another group of people, group of leaders that arose to, to power as well. And if you know anything about the, the New Testament, then you'll, you'll, you'll be familiar with the names Pharisees and, and, and Sadducees. And it was often that group, those groups that Jesus had his, had his run-ins. Do you remember that? Okay, and, and, and they were the ones that, that took his word and made it hard for people to, to come in contact with God with. Then you had the, the Sadducees who were more the, they were kind of a smaller group, but they were the ones that held the power, at least over the Jews. 
But they were religious leaders, but they did not believe in the resurrection, which is just so sad, you see, that they didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay? But you have these groups that sort of come to, they come to to power. This is the world that is going on. This is the world that Luke lives in as he begins composing his gospel. Start reading with me in verse 5 of of Luke chapter 1. In the days of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest of Abiah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. Okay, so right after the the introduction that Luke makes, he begins to tell us about this this couple. You have Zechariah and you have uh, 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 Elizabeth, and we learn a lot about them right off the bat. They are both of the... Aaronic line. In other words, they they have Levite blood. Now, if you were a a male Hebrew who was of the line of Aaron, that means you're a Levite, and that means there's only one job that is available to you, and that is to be a priest. Okay? That was your job. That's what your calling was. And so you were a priest. Okay? That's what Zechariah was. He was a priest. Now then, he was a very devoted priest priest he's a very devoted levite scripture tells us that but if you really wanted to be a good hebrew and you really wanted to show your your piety and your devotion to god then what you'd do is you'd marry somebody else who's kind of similar to you and that's exactly what levi did he married elizabeth who is also from the aaronic line and so you have this this very devout couple Okay, and it's just kind of woven into their DNA that they are going to be people who serve God. But they don't just do it out of a a sense of duty because Scripture tells us that they were both righteous in God's sight, that they lived without blame according to the commandments and the customs. Yet they've got something missing in their life. Did you notice what it was in verse 7? It's that tradition that you've read about all throughout the Bible of families who are, are barren, who don't have children. And that's where we find Zechariah and Elizabeth. And not only that, just like Sarah of old, they're well along in years. Okay, so you have this, this sort of parallel story to Abraham and Sarah with, with Zechariah and Elizabeth. You have this elderly couple They long for children, but yet they don't have them. And of course, in in this day and time, if if you were infertile, one, all of that blame was on the woman. None of the blame went to the man at all. And it was also looked on as a scourge from God. Okay, now then, God didn't look at it that way. But that's the way the people of the day viewed it. If you could not have children... It's not the man's fault. It must be something with you. And you must have done something to to get on God's bad side. That's why he is withholding children in your life. And so that's where they were. Now then, watch how the story unfolds. 
While, while, when his division, this is Zechariah, was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome with fear. <laughs> you think? I would have been. Okay. All right, so now Zechariah, and he's at the temple. Now, he didn't work at the temple all the time. Okay, there's 24 different divisions of priests. Okay, and you do a little bit more digging, and you discover that there's about 20,000 priests that are working during this time. Every year, your division would rotate in for a couple of weeks of work at the temple. And when your division went there, your job was to do the, the ministry of the temple. Okay, it was to do the, the, you know, the altar, the incense, and those kinds of things. It was to lead the prayers and to speak the blessings. And just basically do that temple ministry function. When your time ended, you'd rotate back out to your, your local synagogue. Well, Zechariah's group is there working at the temple, and he gets what is probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because there's about 800 other priests in his division. He gets to go in and light the altar of the incense. Okay, and so he goes into a place where absolutely no other human being is when all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appears to him. Okay, nobody else is there. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden there's an angel of the Lord if that's me, that's going to scare me right out of my priestly little robes, you know. I mean, I'm gone, okay. Uh, I, I remember one time, one time uh, I think my life group was, was cleaning the building, and I don't know if I was here ahead of everybody or what, but I was in the building by myself, and I'm in the women's bathroom cleaning it, not using it, cleaning the women's bathroom, and Lauren came in and scared the poo out of me. Uh, no pun intended. Okay, she scared me to death. Okay, and you know, that's just a human. Imagine what it's like. You're in a place where nobody else is supposed to be, and all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appears. That's what's going on with Zechariah. All right, he's overcome with fear, and then the angel, the angel begins to speak to him. Gabriel says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And so Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, delivers this, this four-part message to Zechariah the priest. One, you will have a son, and his name will be John, which means the Lord is glorious. Two, this son will bring joy to many Three, he's to be raised in the Nazarite tradition. In other words, he's supposed to be completely consecrated to God. That's where the, the no beer, the no wine, the no haircut. Think back to, think back to Samson. 
Okay, Samson was a Nazarite. Okay, that's what that's about. Remember Troy Palomalu that played in the NFL a few years ago? All that lo- those flowing locks? It wasn't just because he liked hair. It's because he had taken a Nazarite vow. That's, that's what that was. Okay, and then fourth, the fourth part of that message is, is that this child will minister in the spirit of Elijah. He will prepare the way for Jesus. The people were waiting on Elijah to sort of come back and, and, and lead the way and prepare the people. And what Gabriel has said is this is it. This is the Elijah you've been waiting on. Okay? This is the one. This is what he will, this is what he will do. Now then, what happens next is, is, is it's interesting and it's funny and comical, but it's also at the same time, it's, it's very real. Because Zechariah asks the question that you and I would naturally ask, how on earth is this going to happen? You know, I'm an old guy. Okay, my wife is an old guy. This is not going to happen. We're not going to have children. How can this happen? And you see this very devout man have something happen that happens to so many devout people. He has a, a momentary lapse in his faith. And you know what I love about that being in the Bible? It's because how many times do we have momentary lapses in our own faith? You know what I'm talking about? That makes this story approachable. That makes it, okay, yeah, all right, that's me too. Sometimes I blow it. Sometimes I have lapses in my faith. And so he does this, and so he, he doubts his ability to father a child. Now, that one's logical, okay? He doubts Gabriel's message. Ultimately, he doubts what, what God is going to do. And so he asks for a, a, a sign. Give me, give me something. Show me something so I know that this is true. And Gabriel says, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a sign, but it's going to come in the form of a punishment. From this time until the baby is born, you are not going to be able to utter a word. Now then, this is where the funny part comes in. So he's in there, supposed to be lighting the altar of the incense. I cannot imagine, you know, that takes too long. You know, I mean, they didn't have these things, but come on. I mean, it, it couldn't have taken that long. He's in there far longer than he should be. The people are gathered and waiting because after he goes in and lights the altar of the incense, he would come out to this sort of railing and he'd pronounce a blessing over the people. Well, they, he's been in there way too long, and finally I just sort of imagine him sort of staggering out there, just sort of absolutely bewildered, and the people are looking at him. And Scripture says that they, they realize that he must have had a vision. And all of a sudden, he's trying to explain to them, without using words, what has just happened. Now, then, it's hard enough to describe an angel as it is, you know. And here he is trying to tell the people about the angel. I mean, what did he do? A halo, you know. I don't know. How do you, how do you describe an angel to people without talking but that's what he's doing, okay? So you just imagine what, what, this must have, what this must have been like. It says, when his days of ministry were completed, he went back to his home, and after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, kept herself in conclu- uh, seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace from among the people. Now then, right on the, on the heels of that, Luke inserts the story of 
Mary and Joseph and Jesus. But we're going to skip that. So drop all the way down to verse 57. We're going to come back to that next week. You drop all the way down to 57, and it's time for the baby to be born. And you know how it is when you're having a baby, all the relatives show up, okay? And you know what relatives are like. They all have an opinion, right? And so the baby is born, and there's great rejoicing, especially because this woman has been waiting so long. Some of the relatives couldn't make it because she outlived them all. But anyway, the ones that are still alive are there. And they've gathered because she's giving birth to this child. Okay, so the baby comes and he is born and there is much rejoicing and they go to circumcise the child when he's eight days old because that's the way you did it back then. And they go to circumcise the child and it says that the people were going to name him Zechariah after his father. Okay, so they see this baby, they circumcise him, let's call him Zech Jr. It's going to be great. And Elizabeth steps in and says, no, 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 that is not his name. Because somehow or another, Zechariah has been able to communicate with his wife that the angels told him the baby's name is John. And so she says, no, that's not his name. It is not Zechariah. And they said, what are you talking about? It's custom to name the child after the father. Nobody in your family has the name John. And so they motioned over to Zechariah, they find out what he wants to be called. He asks for a writing tablet, and he writes out, His name is John. And it says that all the people were amazed, and in that moment, his tongue was loosed. His mouth was immediately open, his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. It says that fear came on all of those who were there, and they began asking in verse 66, What then Will this child become? You see, for nine months, he has had nothing but silence. Nine months to contemplate what had occurred back there at the temple. Nine months to think about that message. Nine months to just kind of soak in and accept and come to grips with that God, Jehovah, Eliah, uh, uh, Yahweh, has done this incredible thing for he and his wife, and this child is going to come, and he's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And so he writes that his name is John, and immediately his tongue is loosed, and the only thing that he can do is begin to prophesy. The silence that has been going on for 400 years, the silence that he's experienced for nine months, the silence is broken, and he begins to prophesy. Verse 68 says, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from the clutches of our enemies, to serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, in His presence all of our days. And child, you, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. 
to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. His only response is prophecy and praise of Jehovah God. The first half of that prophecy is about giving glory to God, but he's also talking about the salvation that is going to come to all of mankind through the Christ child. And then at the end, he turns and he says, and you, child, when he says that, he's talking to his son. And I can almost imagine, I can imagine that he is holding his son, John, in his arms as he says, and you, son, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord and you will prepare his ways for all the people. This is the one that is going to be the voice calling out into the wilderness. Many people believe the days of prophecy to be over, but now they are bursting forth again because the silence is broken. Like any good storyteller, Luke leaves it open-ended for us. Verse 80 says, The child grew up and became spiritually strong, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Just like any master storyteller, he kind of leaves you hanging. He leaves you, you wanting more. He leaves us asking that same question that they asked back in, chapter, in verse 66. What is going to become of this child? This child who has been prophesied over. This child who is going to be the prophet. Who's going to be the voice calling out into the wilderness. The one that is going to prepare the way of Jesus. The silence is broken. As we think about Advent. You see what John was doing. He was preparing the people for the first advent. He is preparing the people for the arise, for the return, the first coming, rather, of Jesus Messiah. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this incredible story that we have, a story that is, is so old, but yet, God, when we read it, we see that there's much today that we can gain from this story. We see that there is, is people that are just going through life and have struggles and have trials that they're dealing with, uh, and they're, they're trying to live out their faith. But in some ways, they just keep banging away on, on what seems like to be hard ground. In the midst of it, God, when you begin to work, they, there's, a, there's a struggle of faith there. And we resonate with that because, God, we have those same struggles of faith. We have those doubts in our, in our walk with you. But, Father, you didn't leave Zechariah and you don't leave us. You stay with us through our doubts and through our fears, through our concerns and through our things that we don't understand. And, Father, you bring us blessing just as you did for Zechariah and, and Elizabeth and father this story is it's so good because it serves to remind us that that John 
was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. He was the one. He was the one who set Advent in motion with his birth, with his words. And so we're grateful for this story and for this this very devout elderly couple who continued to trust you. Father, in our doubts and in our weakness, help us to do the same thing. Help us to turn to you. Help us to trust in you. In the name of Jesus that we all pray and say together, amen.